This episode is supported by Vegamore. I'm a month and a half into my Vegamore journey. I don't know if you've ever had a garden and planted seeds, but when that first little growth breaks ground, it's exciting. And on my very head, I can see some new growth in the areas that I've noticed hair thinning before. And it's exciting to see those little babies coming in. I use the shampoo, conditioner, and the grow serum, which have a lovely, mellow, warm citrus smell. I've been consistently using this and it makes my hair feel soft and full. And it's really important to me that I use safe and conscious products whenever I can. And Vegamore is 100% cruelty-free and are never formulated with potentially harmful chemicals like parabens or hormones. Elevate your hair wellness routine this year with Vegamore. For a limited time, get 20% off your first subscription order by going to vegamore.com slash mind and use code mind at checkout. That's V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind to save 20% on your first order. V-E-G-A-M-O-U-R.com slash mind, code mind. Welcome to Mom in Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression. And this podcast aims to share it all from personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to the Mom and Mind podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, I'm really excited and honored to welcome Dr. Dan Singley to the podcast. I interviewed him seven years ago, almost to the day, actually. I looked through my records to see when exactly we chatted and it was right around this time at the beginning of the Mom and Mind podcast. He graciously offered to come on then and talk about paternal and a father's mental health. And um, just talking to him now and how far things have come in paternal mental health, but also the work he's doing in the world is just really fantastic. And although there's so much more to do, some of the work that he's doing now, including the training on paternal mental health are really groundbreaking and quite necessary for the advancement of the mental health of fathers and men. In our chat today, we touch on some of the prevalence and the presentation, meaning what it might look like for a dad or father to be dealing with a perinatal mental health condition. And furthermore, some of the things that really get in the way societally and culturally, and some of the ways that men and boys are socialized and how that impacts their mental health and how they talk about their mental health. Furthermore, we discuss some of the awesome training that Danny has developed in paternal mental health that I'm really excited for everyone to hear more about. And hopefully if you have some foundational training in perinatal mental health, taking this advanced training will really, really add to your understanding of fathers. What I love about this training though, is that you don't have to be a therapist to take it. There is so much information that is useful to know, but also breaks down a lot of the stigma around father's mental health. A little bit about Danny. Dr. Singley is a San Diego-based board-certified psychologist and director of the Center for Men's Excellence. His research and practice focus on men's mental health with a particular emphasis on reproductive psychology and the transition to fatherhood. 
Dr. Singley won the American Psychological Association's 2017 Practitioner of the Year Award from the Division of Men and Masculinities. He is the past president of the APA Section on Positive Psychology and is currently the president of the APA's Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities and the President's Advisory Council for Postpartum Support International. He conducts trainings and presentations around the country to assist individuals and organizations to enhance their level of father inclusiveness and founded the grant-funded Basic Training for New Dads, Inc., nonprofit, and Padre Cadre social networking application just for dads in order to give fathers the tools they need to be highly engaged with their infants as well as their partners. So let's get into it and meet Dr. Dan Singley. Welcome, Danny. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me on again. Yes, it's been seven years. I have to check the date to see if it's exactly seven years since we last had you on the podcast, but it's been a minute. And the whole time, the whole time, you've still been working day and night for dads and fathers and have been doing so many super cool things, including the paternal mental health training that we'll get to later, but I definitely want to talk about that because it's like, you know, the first and best uh, <laughs> of its kind. You mean the birth of the fatherhood training? Huh? Yes. See what I did there? So uh. clever. So clever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for coming on. In the time since I guess you were last, I've seen you many, many times since you were on the podcast. Yeah, I've been watching you do all kinds of stuff for, for parents as well, by the way. We're just doing cool stuff. That's just Ooh. it. But yeah, I mean, we've spent a lot of time through PSI uh, mm-hmm. working on board stuff together. But I just, uh, for perspective, for folks who are listening, I want to run through a couple of things. Where do you see the kind of state of fathers, parenting, of fathers and paternal mental health now, as opposed to seven years ago? It's improving, but not fast enough. And I would say the same thing about, about perinatal health, mental health broadly, and, and certainly maternal mental health. It's just um, part of the difference that I see, and this may be getting a little bit like, I don't know, sociological or, or controversial in some ways, but part of the frame here is what I've seen happen is that, I mean, we're 50 years post-Title IX, 50 plus years post-Title IX at this point, and that legislation was designed to right some of the systematic wrongs that kept women and girls from being able to advance. And in that 50 year, I'm not painting a picture of a level playing field here, but there have certainly been advances. And in a way, sort of we as a society seeing being able to show respect for females moving into traditionally masculine spaces, Supreme Court, you know, boardrooms, so forth. And we, I've seen a less of a movement to show respect for men and fathers moving into traditionally feminized spaces. And so that to me is one element that I see certainly needs some work, like mm-hmm. with stay at home dads or, you know, getting involved in, like in mental health and right. psychology. But I, there has been more on the news about periodically, you'll see something about a dad with postpartum depression, drawing more attention to that. We as a country are terrible in terms of parental leave and the, sort of some of the specific pressures that dads will experience that overlap with, but aren't exactly the same as what people of other genders will experience when they're, you know, when they work of uh, paid work outside the home. Those are some examples, I think. 
Yeah. I mean, I hear bits and pieces of what you're describing when I talk to my female new mom clients who are, some of them are saying that their partners do have parental leave. And when mom goes back to work, dad's taking a month off and that's super cool. Uh, and then there, but there are still certainly people whose partners cannot, the fathers can't take time off of work and they might be home for a couple of days and then have to go back to work. Or at least if they do have leave, feel like they have to go back to work. So yeah, I can feel some of the shift that you're describing, but there's still so much to do. Yeah. What do you think about just that idea of, or the reality of some dads not really feeling like they can take that time or feeling like they have to stick to those sort of more traditional roles? What are those pressures about? So... I mean, first, as you alluded to, the financial realities and pressures oftentimes are what govern the play here, right? Mm -hmm. If if really any parent, but I'm focusing on the dads here, is working three jobs trying to make ends meet, then the prospect of taking a month off or even several days off when, when living paycheck to paycheck is very much the reality, I don't have an answer for that. That's a broader systemic conversation to have. And one that I quite often in terms of like, you know, how, how do we navigate this and what would that look like? I also, you know, here in our in our practice, so I'm here in Southern California and the Center for Men's Excellence, we specialize in psychology of men and, and masculinity. Mind you, we also see, you know, clients of all genders, but our, you know, our branding and our expertise does coalesce around male identified people. And so end up working with, you know, my research is on fathers' involvement with infants. And so we also get a lot of fathers and a a lot, I'd say a good chunk of the patients that I see are in tech and work at, you know, at tech or biotech and have fairly, you know, intense, high velocity jobs. Mm-hmm. And it varies a lot. It varies a lot from sure. within a company, from functional unit to functional unit between companies. Um, I also have a lot of uh, folks that are up in in the Bay Area, like, you know, the Googlers and the Metas and, mm-hmm. and Uber and so forth. And a lot of it depends on the on the supervisor and the division. But the short version of what we'll see over and over again is, I mean, if you can take six weeks off and we keep things going, what do we need you for? And it's kind of like dog years mm-hmm. when you start looking at it that way. But of course, there is nuance there and sort of how we're gendered to think about this, right? Yeah. Like most of us, when we think about perinatal mental health, really what term that gets used more is maternal. Mm-hmm. Mental health, and so for folks that do have a more traditional sense of gendered parenting, it's kind of an assumption around. Well, yeah, the dad doesn't really need to be there, mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. talking in sort of typical, you know, cishet family constellations. Like, I mean, that's and you'll see this actually. Like sometimes it'll make the news when like an MLB pitcher mm-hmm. doesn't go to a game, mm-hmm. and then you'll see like the sports pundits like you know come out of the woodwork. Yeah like shaming or saying like, you know, this isn't your thing. And the last part of your question was like, where does that come from? It comes from, from socialization. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'll hear all the time. Like I'm actually about to teach our dad's class tomorrow. And so we'll get people from all different, you know, different countries, different areas. And periodically you'll hear, I will hear folks say stuff like, you'll hear the guys say, well, I, you know, I don't have the boobs and like, you know, she's the gatherer and I'm the hunter mm-hmm. and I can you know, only do this and that stuff. And they want to come with these sort of like, 
fairly bogus, like evolutionary, like behavioral genetic. So there are some contributions from that zone, yeah. but it doesn't add up to you can't change a diaper or do skin to skin mm-hmm. or you know, like that. And so mm-hmm. largely, I think it has to do with how we're socialized to think about about early parenthood and, and men and the role of fathers. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I imagine it's going to take a long, long time for things to shift because it was more like the the hunter-gatherer analogy. It's been like that for a long, long, long time. And, you know, it's, I'm sure, very different in different countries. There's there's all kinds of of differences in, in, in societal expectations, men and boys, that really get deeply, deeply rooted in. So how do you, I guess we're here, here, U.S. here. What is paternal mental health? What is going on with dad's um, mental health in the reproductive period? So broadly speaking, there are a series of somewhat predictable kind of milestones throughout, you know, the perinatal conception to about a year or so postpartum. And no situation is the same. But to me, like the top level question is, was this a planned pregnancy or not? Mm. And if it was planned, if it were, so again, Southern California, lots of family constellations, poly, family polycules like to put up, sort of going with the, the traditional, we've got the, if one parent was leading the charge and the other one might have been holding back versus they're both on the same page, this is the time, let's do this, is one very important top level consideration. Yeah. From there, aspects, there are plenty of cultural implications for how we understand pregnancy and experience it. If there are pregnant, you know, complications during the pregnancy, if it becomes high risk and, and the birth itself. But if we're going to take all of these and say like, okay, let's say it falls kind of a typical course, father's doing the daddy nesting thing, you know, certainly by the third trimester or so, like assuming that they engage in, in um, paid work, what are we going to do about money? Even if they're not, but the fear about like, how am I going to do work? How am I going to do work life? You know, are our baby and partner going to be safe and happy and healthy and so forth. And then, you know, sort of the birth itself and then how that plays out. And there one pretty common shift that I've seen that even some of the more like well-therapized or pretty like, you know, progressive, like they're in it in the process, in the, in the birthing process is a real shift in their sense of identity about who I was before and who am I now. And some folks experience this more like the sort of, it's not a loss of independence, but it's important to recognize that experiencing a kind of grieving, grieving or loss in the wake of a birth mm-hmm. seems a little counterintuitive, but that's not just about death, right? right? That's like a sense of identity. Like who was I before? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the change in my relationship with my partner, like I had him her, or them all to myself. Mm-hmm. And now there's this whole shifting dynamic. And so there's room certainly for, you know, adjustment, not room. You are adjusting. Right. There's room for stress and distress. And within that, you know, the common prevalence, at least for postpartum, internal postpartum depression is 10%. So one in 10 dads will develop postpartum depression. It's typically not at that one month postpartum where we do the differential diagnosis from baby blues and MDD, peripartum onset for women. It usually tends to spike three, four, five months postpartum. But I could I could say more about that, but that reflects one of those sort of somewhat predictable milestones. Independent, oh not independent, alongside the depression, anxiety and anxiety disorders. 
I don't just mean like I'm kind of stressed out. I mean, PTSD, acute stress, generalized anxiety, OCD, and so forth. Those prevalent rates, prevalence rates are almost 20%. Those vary from like 4 to 18% mm-hmm. in the postpartum period. And so they're oftentimes not really in radar. Like just dads, people who identify as dads. Yeah, just the dads. Mm-hmm. Just the dads. There's a solid uh, meta-analysis, like a review that came up with, it was like, between 2 and 16% develop an anxiety disorder during pregnancy and like 4 to 18% in the postpartum period, which from a public mental health perspective, that's a huge number. You know, and as, as we know, depression and anxiety tend to go together. Yeah. And it's not just depression and anxiety, right? Like in, in reproductive mental health, we don't really talk enough about like, like some of the developmental disorders, right? ADD, ADHD, autism spectrum substance, sexual function and dysfunction, like there's these kind of areas where we tend not to focus that much, oftentimes because like developmental stuff doesn't start in the reproductive period. But I'm here to tell you, like dads that I will work with who have Asperger's and or ADD and have found really solid ways to be high functioning to cope with it, well, the transition to parenthood brings with it relational, environmental, sensory changes, which really require thoughtful intervention that's tailored to the person. So th- these are some of the, I think, the really key elements to be to be looking out for. And certainly the relationship, right? Yeah. Like most of the research shows that it's the quality and the satisfaction in the parent's relationship that, that strongly impacts their individual mental health and in a sense serves as that crucible within which their baby's well-being grows. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. And for a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 15% off OneSkin products using the code MIND when you check out at oneskin.co. Well, I've kept up my mini resolution of taking better care of my skin after consistently using OneSkin for several weeks and all is going well. I can't see what's going on at a cellular level, but I can tell you that my skin feels soft and healthy. But they did do some cool research that looked at before and after exposure of the OS1 peptide to skin cells, and the one skin scientists found that the peptide reverses skin's biological age. And you can even see that study by Zonari A. et al. in the NPJ Aging Journal. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, OneSkin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code MIND at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code MIND. After you purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin. That's OneSkin. This episode is supported by Factor. Eating better is better with ready-to-eat Factor meals. And ready-to-eat means pop it in the microwave for two minutes and done. I mix in a few of these meals into my rotation for the days that we're on the run or that I don't want to make anything. I chose the high protein and calorie smart options, one of which is the mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice with garlic roasted green beans. This is restaurant quality and so tasty. I can adjust how many meals I get in my order as much or as little as I need every week. Plus, I can pause or reschedule my deliveries anytime, which comes in really handy for our busy schedule. 
Head to factormeals.com slash momandmind50 and use code momandmind50 to get 50% off. That's code momandmind50 at factormeals.com slash momandmind50 to get 50% off. I mean, this is all super duper important. And as you're talking, I'm also thinking about the people who are listening who maybe have what I will call like a, an um, an older school mentality or mm-hmm. just haven't come up to speed saying like, well, nothing really happens to the dad. It's the mom who's pregnant. It's, or the, you know, it's the mom who gave birth and it's the mom who's nursing and, you know, dads don't get postpartum depression. I mean, you still see that kind of yeah, thing. I hear that. Certainly. It's not like one or two people. A lot of people are still holding on to that, but right then the new paradigm or the, the one that, you and all of us are are trying to shift into is that actually it affects the whole system, the family system. And dad or partner is a massive part of that. They have thoughts, they have feelings, all all of that stuff, even if it's not being expressed outright. What about the specifically postpartum depression? Can you talk a little bit about what is seen in the research about um, hormones and what is actually shifting for the partner? 100%. Let me first make a general statement. I focus on fatherhood and men's issues. I am no kind of a gender warrior. I'm not. Uh, my, I don't presume to be able to tell people what their families need to look like. And the reality is there are all different kinds of families and all different backgrounds and all different contexts, and they make it work, and they have their own struggles. So I'm not here to make blanket statements about the way men need to parent or, or families need to operate. And for folks who do have a more traditional bent with respect to their gender roles and it's working cool right. you know and, and do that to the question though about the, the biological changes this is something that a lot of people don't know and you're right like i do a lot of training i regularly get hands going up with people saying look can't you just let the moms have it and this is their area and so forth and, and respectfully i'm like no because this is about parents it's not about gender per se this is about parents and, and the family system and the research certainly supports uh, the prevalence factors that I was just throwing out there, prevalence rates. And no, I personally, I'm not okay with, with, with leaving a whole segment of the parenting population out there to just hope for the best with their mental health. And right. uh, one of my colleagues, Darby Saxby, she's at, she's at USC. Um, and another, I haven't actually met Ruth Feldman. She's in Israel. The two of them are, have really done pioneering work that looks at neurobiological and the neuroendocrine functioning of fathers in the early period. And they've done both sort of like, you know, taking, you know, hormonal samples, but also using fMRI to look at some of the neurobiological shifts that happen in fathers. And the short version of what they found is that this is a very important caveat. For fathers who are hands-on during the pregnancy, during the birth, and then with the baby, these fathers experience the same hormonal shifts that mothers do, that that gestational mothers do, um, and that gestational trans fathers do, right? It's just that in these fathers who are not gestational, the decrease in testosterone, the increase in estradiol, the increase in, you know, pair bonding, vasopressin, oxytocin, and an increase in cortisol and so forth, like, the directions are the same. It's the magnitude in the fathers that are less and they are significantly different than those levels in the general community, in the, in the general population. So 
in that sense, you can absolutely say, and the same thing with like the, the neurobiological circuits um, that tend to light up around um, interpersonal, social, emotional functioning. Um, they look very similar when they're highly involved with their babies. Uh, but that being said, I mean, you know, as well as I do, even better, it's a mistake to boil the parenting experience and certainly perinatal mood and anxiety disorders down to just a biological phenomenon. Right. Biology and hormones absolutely contribute. I'm the last person that's going to agree with that. In fact, there's now solid research on fathers longitudinally following them that does typically tend to look at testosterone with the men that, that, that can show direct relationships between cortisol levels and dysregulation and then the subsequent timing and development of postpartum depression. But for any parent, we shouldn't be saying it's only about the biology. It's only about hormones because relationship factors, SES factors, race, ethnicity, you know, family, like they, all of these dimensions come together for a unique constellation of strength and resiliencies, but also risk factors. And that, that includes that. Yeah. It's really sad, I guess, frustrating that, again, we're speaking of, of dads specifically here. There's still so much that they have to work against. Oh, like, let's say they're societally, right? Because they're, quote unquote, not supposed to whatever, have whatever feelings people think they're not supposed to have. Or they don't even have feelings. They, they just may need a men's therapist to help them find them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Absolutely, people have feelings. But if somebody, let's say there's a dad who's who's struggling, maybe suffering, it's it might be harder for him to say that he is struggling or suffering or even say that he needs help or ask for help or even know that he can get help. I guess I'm trying to speak to and get your take on that silencing effect, how much that impacts them. A lot. father no no hey i need softballs believe me i'm 50 i don't think as well as that (laughs) so generally speaking i see the fatherhood identity as being predicated on the masculinity that one understands that one enacts and so that that factors heavily it's not the only factor but factors heavily into how we show up as a father and what our sense of fathering is about generally speaking when when i ask folks what does it mean to be a father? The trope is protect, provide, sacrifice. And the rubber meets the road here in terms of parent education or people that are doing um, ultrasound and the dad shows up or, you know, just folks that, that are interfacing in, in um, educational or clinical service positions with these dads. And it is, I'm going to say, it does damage to these fathers to give them the message, your job is to be the rock and support your partner. That's what you got to do. And that gets even ramped up when that partner is experiencing a PMAP. Mm -hmm. It's not okay to end there. We have to train people to then continue that statement. And it should, to me, sound like, hey, dad, it's important for you to take care of yourself, make sure that you can be there and be supportive of your partner. And you are going to need your own support Mm -hmm. that is above and beyond what any one person can provide, including your partner, no matter how great they are. 
And fathers need to hear this. People need to hear this because it's not in contradiction to it supplements the protect, provide piece. Those are noble elements of parenting and of father, the protection, the provision, being selfless and sacrifice. I'm never going to say, let's get away from that. What I am going to say is, let's get away from a rigid, inflexible approach to fathering that says it's only about that. It's only about the resource provision. And frankly, you asked about, you know, what do I think has changed? One of the things that I think is that I see slowly changing. I see early fatherhood as the tip of the spear in terms of the reconstruction, the sort of ongoing evolution of masculinity. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is these days, very rarely will you hear folks come out and say, like, it's not cool to be a caring dad. <laughs> there are people that at the end of the day, like, nobody's like, yeah, be an absent dad, like, be a tyrant. Like, no, it's much more. And, and even for early fatherhood. And to me, we as a society beginning to show respect for and to reinforce and to normalize the caring aspects mm-hmm. of masculinity, that it is cool to be a dad who can be tender and emotionally available to your partner and to your baby, even while being a hardcore litigator or, you know, a, a badass military officer and, and having those spaces where the more sort of traditional aspects of masculinity are functional, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm able to then take that sense of, hey, actually caring in this context as a dad, in this context as a partner, is good and appropriate. My In my heart of hearts, what I'm hoping for is that these fathers, as we move ahead as a cohort, start to be able to normalize and show that being caring and willing to accept influence, communicating assertively, taking care of ourselves starts to get infused into other parts of their lives. So it gets normalized as part of being a man or a male identified person. That's what I hope for. Right. And you're working really, really hard to get there. And I'm sure in some ways it feels like an uphill battle when there's a lot of these other societal things, just like lobbying. Such as dad, we can see, right? <laughs> That's right. This episode is supported by Ritual. I am by nature and nurture a bit skeptical. I have to see for myself if something works or if it's helpful before I just believe it whole cloth. And I'm open to trying things out to see for myself. And that includes finding strategies for my wellness. I have historically low vitamin D, so it's important for me to take Ritual's Essential 18 because it has D3 in it, and their clinically backed Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin has several other high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. What I love and have always loved about Ritual is that it's a female-founded company, and it's a B Corp, which means they're holding themselves accountable and not just long-term, but also to the health of people and our planet. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash momandmind. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash momandmind for 25% off. This episode is supported by Hungry Root. I am a creature of habit when it comes to food, like I buy the same stuff in the store and generally make the same stuff over and over. Not really that fun. So in order to shake things up, I use Hungry Root. I can pick a whole meal, 
and they send me what I need to make it, but I will also just let them choose so I don't get into my rut. And it paid off. I got the chicken shawarma non-flatbread. These are flavors that I wouldn't have thought to put together on my own, and they totally work. It was so yummy and so easy to make. And bonus, I also received for free organic roasted chicken breast that I threw into a salad for another meal. Hungry Root is my partner in healthy and yummy living. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Mom and Mind listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash cat to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash cat. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. So outside of, well, not just, but the importance for the dad, as we're talking about, to be able to recognize and honor his own mental health needs. What do you think, or can you speak to the impact of if dad is able to do that, get the help he needs and so on, what's that impact on baby or kid and and family system? So I'm going to be kind of a butthead and answer this question a little bit differently. The way that you ask that question is, how by the dad taking care of himself, does it impact the baby? And I'm not picking on you, but Really, the first like 30 years of fatherhood and and early fatherhood research asks exactly that question. What, how does, you know, from a methodological perspective, the dads are an independent variable and then baby and partner are the dependent variables. And so it was basically what can dad do for them? That's important, but like you said at the end there, it's a system. Mm -hmm. One of the things that my research team has done is we've made the dad the dependent variable. So we look at all these different, how does his relationship with his infant is support from his partner, from his family, his, his masculinity, you know, depression, anxiety, and so forth. Like, how does how does all that impact him and his psychosocial due-to-dad transition, but then also his involvement with his infant, Yeah. right? And interestingly, I think we're not really seeing any better messaging around fathers need to take care of themselves for the sake of themselves or really for their babies. And it, part of what I find is interesting is that even when these dads do get depressed, like the general assumption is they get depressed, they're going to be sort of vegetative and low energy and unmotivated, and then they're not involved with their babies. What our research team has found, actually, we don't, the way that we look at father's involvement with infants is, is multidimensional. And so it breaks out play from the work to like a meta sort of monitoring the, the scheduling and you know, the feeding and, and healthcare and, and, and direct care. Indirect care means I'm schlepping my kid around to, you know, maybe I'm running errands or I'm taking them to um, doctor's appointments or whatever. What we found, interestingly, is that depressed dads, dads with depression, tend to be more highly involved in indirect care. And depression doesn't impact how much they engage in the work, right? Diapers, swaddling, soothing, putting down like, you know, bottles and so forth, which Mm -hmm. It being independent, I find really interesting because it's sort of like, well, that's what I'm supposed to do anyway, which is very different than, say, they 50 years ago. But your question was like, so what do we do with these guys when they struggle? Like, how, how do we even address that? Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about it, you brought up another important question or not question, but thing to address in my mind, which is the sort of presentation, what it looks like when a dad is dealing with depression or anxiety or or whatever mental health changes he's experiencing. Cause it doesn't like to, I think to what you were alluding to, it doesn't necessarily look like this Mm -hmm. withdrawn dad. What does it look like? Can it, what can it look like? Quick psych of men 
crash course and as it relates to this one there's a, there's a very important term to be aware of alexithymia in the research literature it's called normative male alexithymia but people of all genders can experience it a without lexi words thymia feelings and this gets at the sort of kind of stereotype of men don't talk about their feelings um, and there's plenty to that because we they, they learn around you know five six seven years old that you're going to get shamed for that and the gender policing begins and they're less expressive but a lot of men do adhere to an alexithymic presentation in which they may not simply even be aware of that affective internal experience or they're aware of it, but they don't have the words for it. They don't know how to say helpless, hopeless, ashamed, worried, rejected, whatever it is, or they do. They're in touch with it. They know what it's called, but they will never communicate. They won't say it. And so that just has a, a sort of, a, it's not all men and it's, varying in different, in different ways, but that's one really important psychological dynamic to be aware of. From there, there is, this is not in the DSM uh, about depression, although interestingly, the DSM-5 that just got revised did for the very first time include a caveat about gender and depression, saying that men are more likely to get, engage in externalizing, and women are more likely to engage in internalizing manifestations of which those of us that do this work, like we you know, because we see it all the time, mm-hmm. but it's cool to finally see that being included in, mm-hmm. in the DSM. There's what we call uh, MDD, major depressive disorder, male type, or masked male depression. And this absolutely describes a common way that paternal postpartum depression will show up. And it's generally, as opposed to like, I'm suicidal and weepy and I'm in the corner, or I won't get out of bed. It generally tends to look like anger or or just real extreme irritability, a tendency to do more drinking or drugs, or I mean, really kind of any dopaminergic behavior, video gaming, risky sex, jumping out of planes, gambling, shoplifting, whatever the thing is like that, an increase in that, that's that externalizing, you know, problematic coping. Like taking on new hobbies, even getting super into them, things that take them out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which relates to third point, which is being more withdrawn. And the thing that's interesting about the withdrawal of MDD male type is that you can be around people all the time. You can be at work around people. You can live in a multi-generational household. You're around people all the time. However, you're isolated because you're not engaging. And this can be a little confusing for folks like, well, he's just always kind of quiet. Okay, but this, let's get sensitized to that. And then the fourth common element of this male type depression is somaticized, the tendency to, so like, I can't be depressed, like I'm a man or whatever. However, I can have muscle tension or migraines or gastrointestinal distress or feel like there's a weight on me or something. And so when you, when you kind of put all this together, okay, he's super irritable all the time. He's pretty withdrawn. He's playing video games all the time and his guts hurt and he has headaches. Like he might just seem annoying or like a butthead or is he self-centered or whatever the thing is, right? Even pretty seasoned clinicians who don't have a focus on men's issues or aren't sensitized to the perinatal nuances of mental health may not even connect it to the birth or the reproductive mm-hmm. process. And that can be a real shame when that's the case. It's a very important part of the diagnostic and Centralization. Well, that brings me to your training because I know I mm. was in your training and it was fantastic and even, you know, made me reflect a bit on my own father's experience as a father mm. as I was listening to you talk mm. um, about father's experiences and brought me to some new insight about my own dad. That's cool. Yeah, I love it that. was cool. It was cool. But what to your point, like there are really 
great clinicians out there who don't have training or the training to be able to see and understand and get that nuance. So can you talk a little bit about what the training that you developed? I mean, there's so much in there, but just an overview of what it is and why it's so important. Yeah. First, Pat, thanks for the kind words about the training. Like, it was so good, Danny. That means a lot to me. I'm like, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And yeah, I'm like, I'm super excited about it. So I worked on it for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. It's a day long training that's offered. I'm one of PSI's trainers. And we did it for the first time here in San Diego in April. And then again at the annual conference. So as I say, it's a day long training. That's part of the advanced psychotherapy track for PSI's perinatal mental health uh, certification. And it is, I mean, it really is a labor of love for me because we get to drill into much more detail about background factors and the current state of the literature and uh, trans dads and African-American dads and uh, adolescent dads, some of the special issues that come up around different sorts of fathers. And then we really drill into, in the afternoon, the clinical nuts and bolts. And we'll look at what are some ways to tweak. Like, it's not for people that don't have any familiarity. It's an advanced training. And so we, we kind of assume that you're familiar with things like cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, mindful, you know, acceptance and commitment, therapeutic, interpersonal psychotherapy. And we really get into like assessment, like what are some of the key assessment skills that have been validated on fathers and men, how to incorporate those into sort of more nuanced conceptualizations about fathers in place from an intersectional frame mm-hmm. between their ears in their family, in their neighborhood, and their, in the, you know, in, in the systems that draw to bear on them. Mm-hmm. And it is so fun to do. Mm-hmm. And it's really lovely to be able to, to have a space where folks clearly want to be able to turn around and, and take some of that to their own setting. So yeah, I've been thrilled to, we're actually doing it again. We're going to be doing it in Florida in October and in an ongoing way. And I definitely encourage folks, if you're even kind of like, Oh, yeah, the dads, as you're listening to this podcast and you're a clinician or of also like you might be a lactation consultant, you might be, you know, a a doula or an administrator of some Mm -hmm. sort. And it would help you to just know some of the specifics about what these interventions and conceptualizations and and assessments and programmatic approaches look like. Come check it out. It's called Foundations in Paternal Perinatal Mental Health. And you can go to postpartum.net and get information about it. You can request having it brought to your community if you feel like you've got enough folks that would be interested. Yeah. I mean, it's so important and so necessary and there's nothing else like it, unfortunately. But also, I'm so grateful that you did do this and you put so much time and effort and energy into it. And I know some of the sort of behind the scenes work that you've done on this. It's just so incredibly impressive. And, you know, I was sitting in the back of the room And so I could get kind of like a scope of other people who were in there and listening. I saw so many like heads shaking, hands going up, like grunts and sounds of just like, you know, acknowledging the truth of what you guys were training on. And that's part of the, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because this is so important. It is so incredibly important. You're doing groundbreaking work and I'm just so grateful Thanks. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, like, if we can just kind of like shut the doors and it's just you and I talking on your <laughs> podcast here. I was intimidated. I'm like, 
oh man, this is the first time we're doing this at the conference. It's the big leagues. Chat's like an awesome therapist and the president of PSI. I was like, never watch it. So I'm like, okay, cool. We got uh, I had a little bit of nerves on that front, but um, oh, no, sounds, I appreciate yeah. you being there and the grace and the kind words. And, yeah. and that's a very big deal. It means a lot to me. And, and I'm hoping it just, you know, gets bigger and bigger. So more folks can take that knowledge and apply it in their own settings. Cool. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing all this with us. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. I just loved this conversation with Danny and I loved the training that he is doing through postpartum support international. I highly suggest it having sat through that training myself. I can tell you personally how valuable it is and just how much you'll learn. Even if you have some fundamental knowledge of father's mental health, there's so much more information in this training. Connect with Dr. Singley at menxcel.com. And you can also find him on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at menxcel. And you can go to Postpartum Support International and look for the trainings that PSI offers. The Foundations in Paternal Mental Health is one of them. And as he said, if you're interested in having this training near you, you can inquire about that as well through PSI. Please do share this episode with anybody, any therapist, any person who comes into contact with any new father, because the information is important. I mean, as you heard in our conversation, it's not just about mental health, but it's about how society and culture impacts men and fathers and how that impacts mental health. So there's really good information in here for everyone. Thank you so much for being with us until next time. Please find the Mom and Mind podcast on momandmind.com or wellmindperinatal.com, where you can also find access to my free online mini course that is specifically designed for people experiencing anxiety in the postpartum period. Or you can learn more about the three and a half hour self-paced course that I created just for managing postpartum stress. You can also connect with us on social media at Mom and Mind on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you for tuning in and learning more about perinatal mental health. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy.